Hello, my name is Michael D'Aloya, and you're listening to the Startup Lakewood Podcast. This podcast explores the trials and tribulations of Rust Belt entrepreneurs who are taking the risks and defying expectations in the great city of Lakewood, Ohio. Entrepreneurs enjoy this open, liberal, individualistic, yet supportive city. While we're not as large as our next-door neighbor, Cleveland, it doesn't mean our entrepreneurs don't have dynamic stories. They do, and this podcast captures the great giving spirit of our citizens. Today, we talk with Matt Fish, the visionary. Matt, as you know, has opened Melt, one of the most iconic restaurants in the United States today. Matt started at Humble Beginnings as a chef in a small restaurant in Parma. He has grown a national iconic brand. I think you'll find his story interesting because of the struggles and the vision that he had and he put in place to make Melt what it is today. Let's listen to his story. So Matt, I really appreciate you coming in the studio today and talking to Startup Lakewood Podcast. Curious if you could give our listeners a little flavor on your background. Ooh, flavor. Um, uh, I don't know how deep you want me to go. Let's see. Um, well, born in 1973. I'm a Cleveland native. Uh, that makes me 45 years old. Um, I was raised, born, raised, and lived in Parma, Ohio, which is technically the center of the universe. If you're from Parma, you you understand that. If you're not, then you'll you'll never get that joke. But did you know Chef Boyardee is buried in Parma? I knew he was from Cleveland. I did not know that he was buried in in Parma. He lived in Parma. Did I did not so know? So you've that. got great culinary roots. I, we do. We have such flowing a, through Parma. Wow, that's right. I didn't know that. I'm gonna have to go find his gravestone and maybe take a photograph with it. I was raised on Chef Boyardee as a kid, so. Those beef raviolis were like my jam for for a long totally. time. Totally, it's a good I was in can of food. <laughs> <laughs> I used to eat them cold out of the can. I was, I was, uh, that's. I mean, that's in, in a nutshell. That's where like the grilled cheese concept came from. Because I, growing up as a kid, and even into my high school, college, and even past college days, I was always on the go. I was running, doing eight thousand things at the same time. I never sat down to eat a meal. I was either working playing music in bands, chasing girls, trying to get some sleep, you know, or all all four at the same time. So I was always grabbing like just bread and cheese or right. eating something cold <laughs> right. out of a can and running or trying to drive and eat at the same time to get to wherever I was going. But that's completely off topic. That has nothing to do with my background. Or maybe it does have something to do with my background. It's insightful nonetheless. So Parma, Ohio, I was there. I got my first restaurant job in Parma. It was a little Italian restaurant and pizzeria. It was a woman who was an Italian, obviously immigrant, and she was the first generation here in the United States. So I got a job at this little pizza joint in Parma right out of high school, not ever cooking commercially. I just loved cooking. I actually was dating a girl who was working at this pizza shop, and I would find myself going to visit her every day after I got off work. I was stocking shelves at a local grocery store, and I would go see her because she worked a night shift over there, and I would help her out making dough, making sauce, making pizzas, answering the phone, taking deliveries, washing dishes, you know, like nine times out of ten, somebody wouldn't show up or the place was busier than she could handle. Right. So I would just jump in and help. I eventually found myself going to hang out with her, not to really to see her, but to actually like, because I just loved working in that kitchen environment so much. So I decided to quit my job at the grocery store and go work at this pizza place full time. 
And then her and I kind of butted heads working together and um, it just didn't work out. So she ended up quitting and leaving and I stayed and ended up staying there for about- Was that part of the split? Did you negotiate that yeah. I'm staying at the pizza joint? <laughs> no, I think we ended up breaking up after that, after that slight, shortly after that. Maybe not. I'm not sure. And my memory is really fuzzy. That was a long time ago. But that's where really my love for cooking came from. I, this woman who owned the, who owned the pizzeria, you know, took me under her wing and taught me everything she knew, taught me, taught me how to make sauce from scratch, meatballs, breads, pastas, you know, really just showed me the way that she knew from her mother, from her grandmother. And I really just fell in love with that culture, fell in love with that cooking atmosphere. It was a mom and pop shop. It was, you know, family owned. There were only a couple employees. They had regulars. So I just got to know people and I just loved that hustle and bustle. So from there, I was already going to Tri-C at the time, just taking general classes. And I, f- I knew that Tri-C had a culinary program and a restaurant management program. So I really had no direction in my life at that point. I didn't know what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. So I thought I would re- enroll in the 101 class and see what it was all about in this in this hospitality management department. And I really just fell in love with that as well. It was, it was fun. It was new. It was interesting. It was really focused on exactly what I thought I wanted to do. Because I I didn't know it at the time, but I had, I always had this crazy entrepreneurial spirit. I always had this drive to do something for myself on my own, on my own terms, no matter what. And as I worked through in restaurants or I was in bands or, you know, even in this culinary school, I was always driving myself to be better than everybody else, to do something completely different than everybody else, to set myself apart, to be a leader, to take charge. And, you know, looking back, you know, a couple of years ago, I was like, wow, you know, I just had, I always had this crazy entrepreneurial spirit. No matter what I did, I was gravitated towards being in charge or being the leader or developing something or creating something to make whatever I was doing work. So that's really what led up to me opening the restaurant in 2006 was because I just had a drive and an ambition to do something for myself on my own on my own terms, no matter what, make or break, Matt Fish, putting himself out there, really no partners, no assistance, just if it's going to work, I'm going to make it work on my own the way I want it to work. If it's not going to work, I tried it, no regrets, you know, pick up the pieces, the sun will rise tomorrow, and I will find something else to do with the rest of my life, you know? It's a fascinating story, and I love the local flavor to it. I want to get into a little bit more on your on your drive. You seem to be, at first blush, California cool. <laughs> And yet you talk, and you, when you talk about this drive, you can feel that passion and that motivation to move. Where did that come from? I fortunately was raised really well. I have great parents. I came from a really good background, really strong family values on both sides of my mom and my, my dad's side. A really good family background, so I got a lot of good education, like formal education in my life, but I also got a lot of family education at home. My dad's relatively conservative guy. He came from a very conservative background. He had an older father, so his father was really stern with him. My dad really wasn't stern with me. There was a lot of love in our family, but it was also a conservative background. This is how you do things. This is my house. You know, if you want to do something on your own, cool, but you follow the rules while you're here and if you know just don't get in trouble on, on when you're on the outside world my mother was a, was slightly different she was more of a a free spirit more of a liberal she wanted me to enjoy life you know get out there and experience a lot of things so i got a good balance at home somehow my parents it worked out with them being you know really different type of people but they were very similar so i attribute a lot of my success and a lot of the obviously my makeup and who i am to my parents, to the way I was raised. So that, I think that's where my drive and ambition came from. 
granted, my parents, you know, really weren't entrepreneurial type people. My mom was a school teacher for her whole life, and my dad was in investments and insurance sales and things like that. So, you know, they worked for other people. They didn't really do anything on their own. My grandfather and grandmother on my mother's side had a, uh, were farmers. They owned a farm in North Ridgeville. We had 250 acres, and we raised cattle and and uh, chickens and sweet corn and soybeans. So I had that background also. We would go out to the farm literally every weekend, and I would spend weeks at a, at a, at a pop in the summertime when we were kids out there working on the farm, you know, helping my grandfather do things, you know, you know, fooling around, having fun. So, so I learned hard work doing that because we were literally – I was like two, three, four years old, and we're, you know, we're picking vegetables in the garden. We're, we're butchering chickens and cows because that's how, that's just what we did. We didn't buy food at the grocery store. You know, we, we obviously bought staples at the grocery store, right. but our meats and vegetables came from the farm literally since I was born until I was eighteen years old. So, so I had that background, and then my my grandfather on my dad's side, my family is actually actually I can trace my heritage back to in Cleveland, Ohio, before Cleveland was even founded. And I, we can trace our an- our ancestry actually back to the Mayflower. So my family's been in what is the United States literally that long. So the Fish family actually founded Brooklyn, Ohio, you know, which is- <laughs> Is a, that right? Yeah, it's on, the, <laughs> it's on the, the record in Brooklyn, Ohio. My great, 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 great grandfathers, they, the family founded Brooklyn. That's where they came. They moved from New York City and they settled in Cleveland and they settled to where Brooklyn, Ohio is and they actually founded the city. There's a cemetery down off of uh, West 25th in Denison, that area. It's actually used to be called the Fish Cemetery. It's actually the Denison Cemetery now, but half of the cemetery is all the my family. So all the tombstones in there have fish you know, back to the early 1800s. So it's kind of cool. I go down there every so often. And That's crazy. Do you, have you got your plots there yet? No, <laughs> no, I haven't. Sh- I've, I'm, I'm not really looking towards death at this point. No, of course, you know, of course not. No, I don't think they're actually, it's, it's a historical site. You know, it's a Cleveland historical site. It's recognized, I think, on the National Registry of Historical Sites in the United States. So I don't think they're actually releasing new plots in there anymore, but I can make a, maybe I can make a claim for it. Who knows? Just based on family relations, you should be able to get one or two plots. You would think so. Well, I remember we used to, as kids, we used to go down there and we'd have to clean up because I think we still owned it at the time or someone in my family owned it or I, I, I don't know. My dad would know. He knows all this stuff and I, I should ask him. But I remember going there as kids and we would take rakes and garbage bags and we'd go down there and clean up the cemetery. And I remember it was like a family project every so often. This is when we were really young. It's one of my... I just haven't thought about that in probably like 40 years, but I do remember <laughs> doing that. So I think that's where a lot of my, I mean, obviously that's my makeup. That's really, you know, where a lot of my drive, passion, ambition, like core stuff came from. And then as I started becoming older in my late, you know, early teens, you know, I discovered like punk rock and rock and roll and and that kind of lifestyle and that aspect of of life. So, you know, rock and roll really really drove me to do other things too. Where I I kind of combined my early childhood, you know, training and teaching, I guess you'd call it, and I kind of smashed it together with like a rock and roll lifestyle. And 
You know, I'm like the conservative rocker guy. You know, every every situation I've always been, I've I've been the responsible one. I've been the guy in charge. I've been the guy who's bailing a friend out of jail or keeping somebody from making a really major mistake in their life or you know doing things like that. So, you had mentioned your parents. Are they still around? Have they seen your success? Yeah, my dad's still alive and he's remarried. My mom unfortunately died in '99, so. She did not, unfortunately, see any of the success that I've had. I mean, I obviously had successes before course, opening the restaurant. Course, yeah. So she unfortunately passed. She she had breast cancer. She fought it for 10 years, and unfortunately, it got caught up with her. She beat it t- three times, I want to say. And so she's a fighter. She was a fighter. But, yeah, in 99, she passed away. So she's been gone for, shoot, you know, how many years is that now? You know, almost 20. But my dad is still kicking around, still lives in Parma. He's remarried. Been, I think they're coming up on their 10-year anniversary of them getting remarried. So he's happy. He's in his early 70s now. I think he might be 70 or – yeah, I think he's just turned 70 or 71. Yeah, he's still a young man. Yeah, he's ornery. You know, he's, getting, he's turning <laughs> into that, you know, a little little old man. Now he's not little. He's a big, big guy. But no, I still see him every – you know, he's – I still go and visit him all the time. So he's a good guy. That's great. I'm curious, some of your – who are your mentors in the restaurant industry and how do they prepare you for what you're doing today? Honestly, the woman I worked for um, way back in the day uh, in the, the little pizza shop in Parma, Ohio, was called Rocky's Pizza. And her name was Columba, Columba Shita. And, uh, Great name. She lives, in, uh, she lives in Naples, Florida now. She's still around, so I still talk to her every so often. We kind of lost track, but every, every so often. When she comes to Cleveland, sometimes we try to kind of kind of hook heat you know get together and have lunch or say hi she was a major influence on me i would i'm the i'm the guy who's i'm the wrong person to ask about that because i took i tried to take a very personal approach to, to the way i cooked and the way i drove myself to be in the restaurant industry i didn't try to emulate after anyone i didn't look at like a michael simon or you know a, a chef on tv because when i was coming up there were no chefs on tv you know i didn't really pay attention to that stuff i i read cookbooks I went around to different restaurants and ate food, and I tried to take pieces, parts from things that I saw on menus or pieces, parts from from dishes that I tried or saw. I just tried to take those ideas back. I would either take notes or take notes in my head. Then I would go back to whatever kitchen I was working in, or I'd go home and I would try to duplicate those. I'd try to remake those those dishes. I would read cookbooks and try to figure out what that chef was doing. I'd say Michael Simon was probably a good influence on me because when when he just opened Lola, the first Lola in Tremont, this is back in I, I don't know when he opened up, probably late '90s, and I was working at a another restaurant at the time in Brexville, and myself and a couple of the guys that worked there, I ran the kitchen and I had a sous chef and I had a couple other line cooks and we were, you know, quote unquote foodies. We thought we, you know, we were, we were at the, the I don't think that the term foodie was even created probably back not. then, but, but our, what we did was we would go to Michael Simon used to change his menu quarterly. So every, every quarter, every season change. So he'd have a, a spring, a summer, a fall and a winter menu, and it would change basically the first week of the new, of the new quarter. So we would make a point to go to Lola every quarter and just, we basically ordered everything on the menu and there were probably either six or eight of us and we would share everything and we would like try to dissect what he was doing and all this kind of stuff. And obviously we'd enjoy the food and we went there for, for that. But the secondary was, it was kind of doing recon, recon, you know, we were going down there to see what this guy was doing. Cause he was 
I had never seen anything like that at the time. I was still a very young man, you know, just getting into the culinary. I was I was probably going to school and working at the same time. So what he was doing at that point was like really blowing my mind, you know, because, you know, the Food Network really wasn't what it is today back then. Uh, the internet certainly wasn't, wasn't even close to what it is today. So the only way to find these things was in, you had to order cookbooks, find cookbooks, you had to travel to, to find this type of cuisine or fortunately for us in Cleveland or fortunately for me, you know, this guy named Michael Simon opened this restaurant called Lola, which was, you know, really making some waves here. So, I mean, we were that, we were down there, like I said, at least four or five times a year checking it out. So not that I tried to, to like make myself into that type of thing, but it just got my mind wrapping around that there was different ways to prepare food. There was different ways to present food. There was different ways to approach food. The people I've worked for throughout my culinary career and throughout my life, those people have really been my major influence. You know, like the woman who owned the pizza shop. I've worked for some really good managers and owners throughout my career, and I've worked for some really horrible manager, managers and owners throughout my career. So I've I've taken pieces, parts from either one, some, from all of them. I've taken some things and said, hey, I, I liked what that person was doing. I liked the way that person treated me, or I liked the way that person treated the, the employees or the kitchen or the food, and I took things like that. But I also took a lot of bad from people, and I said, I don't ever want to do that. I don't ever want to do that. I don't ever want to do that. The last restaurant I worked at before Open Melt was Johnny Mango down in Ohio City. That's right. And I I worked for Shelley Underwood and Gary Richmond, who owned it at the time. And I learned a a lot from both of them. Uh, a lot of good, not much bad, but I learned a lot of good from them. They're amazing people. I'm still friends with both of them. Very good friends with both of them. Honestly, if I hadn't Open Melt, I mean, I could probably still be there. It was literally my the favorite my. The most favorite job I've ever had. It was a fun environment. I loved the food. Um, I loved the the way that they ran the restaurant. I mean, it was still stressful and it was hard, but their approach to how they're running the restaurant, how they started the restaurant, the approach to food, the 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 the, the different dynamic between them as owners. Um, there's a whole podcast just based off of of like Johnny Mango back in the day. It was a really fun, cool place to to work. That really was the catalyst. That really really what drove me. I always wanted to open my restaurant. I knew I was going to at some point, but when I started working at Johnny Mango, I I worked for Gary and Shelley for almost five years, and I saw what they did. They they opened the restaurant on their own terms, a shoestring budget. This is exactly what we want to do. We were told it's not going to work several times. You know, when they first opened up down in Ohio City, it was a rough neighborhood. They took over an existing old man bar that had been closed for years because someone got shot and killed in the in the restaurant or in the bar at the time. They weren't going to do a burger. They weren't going to do wings. They weren't going to even serve beer. They were just going to do this Caribbean fusion Asian thing. And it was... You know, everyone told them, this is not going to work. You know, what are you doing? Why are you opening up in this urban environment? Blah, 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 sort of thing. And I saw them do what they did and were successful at it. And that's what really was like, wow, if they can do it, and not that, you know, not that they're lesser than me, but if they can do it and I can do it. So uh, that's really what, you know, took me and drove me to say, so I started while I was working at Johnny Mango, you know, not really secretly, but I was working on, I'm going to, at some point in my life, I'm going to follow in their footsteps. I'm going to open my own restaurant. I'm going to see if I can make it a go of it on my own terms. And then here we are. We sit, here we we're are. sitting, talking to each other through glass. <laughs> you know, there, there, there's a lot to dive in on, on your, your response to that question. 
The Lolo restaurant was fa- is a fascinating tipping point, I think, for the culinary industry in Cleveland. Oh, for sure. There was a restaurant there prior to Lolo's called Bohemia, which I used to go to in grad school, where all the beautiful people used to go. And I always felt like uh, this cast-off. Like, I was always sitting in the bar, <laughs> all these great, beautiful people. And then Simon came in and just, I was shocked at how small that kitchen still is, or was, uh-huh. and the food that he was producing from that. But it also mirrors the vibe that you got at Johnny Mango's of you can produce these really wonderful restaurant and kitchens in these, at the time, exotic neighborhoods, and you could be successful. So this leads in well to why Lakewood and why grilled cheese? Uh, well, I'll answer the Lakewood question first. That's the easier one. I was living in Lakewood at the time. I bought my first house in Lakewood in 98 and on Cordova Avenue. Know the street well. And I, actually, a friend of mine lives in my former house because I sold it to her. So uh, her name's Molly and her husband, uh, Nick, live there with their two kids. I've known them for years. And so, hi, Molly and Nick. But anyways, <laughs> so I wanted to do something for my community. I wasn't looking at my restaurant as anything but a Lakewood establishment. I lived in Lakewood. I loved the community. Even when I was still living in apartment at my, my folks' house, I was always coming to Lakewood. I was dating a girl from here at the time. I had a bunch of friends here, you know, you know back in that that 90s punk rock days when everyone would be smoking closed cigarettes and hanging out at the Arabica where the, where Chipotle is now and and doing all that kind of stuff. So I had this house and I I always wanted to open a restaurant and in 2006, you know, it was 2000 it was late 2005, I finally said I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm 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 ready. I've gotten everything out of my system. I had played in bands for years, and I, you know, I, I knew that I had a lot of fun doing that, but I knew that was eventually not going to pay the bills. Um, so I had gotten everything out of my system that I really wanted to do, and I said, if I open this restaurant, I know I'm going to be committed to doing this, and I'm going to have to live in this space for potentially the rest of my life. So I better be ready to, you know, kiss my other world goodbye and my my life before that goodbye. So, but to answer your question, Lakewood, there really wasn't any other consideration for me. It was Lakewood or nothing because I was living in Lakewood. I had a really strong community spirit and I knew that I wanted to do something for the community that I lived in. I felt very strongly and passionate about that. So fortunately for me, I found where Melt is now, you know, on Detroit Avenue. What was it before? For years, it was a bar called the White Door Saloon. And it was it was a um, actually a, a pre-prohibition bar, so it's been around for that long. Mary Arts technically has the oldest liquor license in, in Lakewood, and I technically have the second oldest liquor license in Lakewood because Mary Arts is the oldest bar in Lakewood. And the White Door, in its heyday, in its existence, actually opened up. It was in existence before Prohibition, and then obviously it closed, and then it reopened after Prohibition, and it moved into the space where Melt is now, right after Prohibition. It was actually up the street from there. And the bar that we have, the back bar, was actually moved from the for- from the previous location down the street to the to the new location, which was a some sort of clothing store, textile, you know, kind of thing. So it was the White Door Saloon for years, and the family, I guess, owned it for a couple generations up until, I want to say, the mid to late 90s. Uh, And then they sold it to somebody who went in and closed it and renovated it and then reopened it up again as as 
the White Door Saloon. And then, unfortunately, I think it just kind of spiraled out of control. And after the original family sold it, it just never it never happened again. It, it went through a couple hands pretty quick, changed, changed hands. And then somebody bought it, changed the name to the Midtown Tavern, and that lasted a very short amount of time. And then that's actually the person that I bought the restaurant from or the bar from. It wasn't even a restaurant at, the point, at that point. He was looking to get out. I was looking to get in, fortunately. So I struck a deal, got it relatively, in, you know, nowadays, incredibly inexpensive. You know, at that time, I was like, had no idea how I was going to pay for it, let alone <laughs> <laughs> pay for the renovation or right. open a restaurant. Because, you know, when I say we opened up on a shoestring budget, we opened up on a shoestring. But you were sleeping there or sleeping in a van or at your car while you were doing all that renovation. Well, I lived up the street. So I lived on Cordova. So it was a five-minute walk, two-minute bike ride, you know, two-minute drive. So I was going home every night during the renovation. I, but I was still working at Johnny Mango during the time. I was still working at Mango till September 06. Oh, no, I'm sorry, August 06. And we opened in September 2006. So I bought the restaurant. I bought the business in January of 2006, immediately closed it. We put some paper up on the windows out front so no one could see what we were doing inside. Kind of wanted to start creating some sort of buzz. Or I didn't really even, even think that far in advance. I just didn't want anybody peeking in like, what are you guys doing in there? You know, I don't want to talk to anybody. So we did a lot of work, a lot of renovation work ourselves, me and three friends. The landlords of the Geigers, who own Geigers, you know, the sports store next to us, they were incredibly accommodating, incredibly helpful, super awesome guys. I can't say enough about the Geigers family. We're still friends today. They're still my landlords today. They still own the building that we're in. So they helped us out a little bit financially. They got us in contact with their a contractor friend of theirs who I hired to help us to renovate some space. But we did a lot of the work ourselves, a lot of the work ourselves. I mean, I was refinishing the floors. We were doing the plumbing. We were tearing down walls. We were painting. We were refinishing the bar. We were renovating the kitchen. I mean, it was a lot of, lot of blood, sweat, and tears that, that went into that place. I'm sleeping in my car didn't come until the second restaurant that we opened. That was in Cleveland Heights in 2010, where I slept in. We, uh, we have a cargo van that I would drive out there. The first month that we opened up, I would go out there on a Friday and I would literally drive the van out there and I had a sleeping bag in the back of the van and I would sleep out there Friday, Saturday, Friday night, Saturday night, and then after Sunday, then I would drive back home and then sleep in my bed because there were there were very early mornings and late nights, you know, because I was opening the restaurant and closing the restaurant. So I was a f driving all the way back to Lakewood from Cleveland Heights. Right. You know, it's about a 40-minute drive. So A, I was afraid that I wouldn't make it I wouldn't get up the next morning to get back out there in time, or I'd be so tired that, you know, potentially, you know, get an accident or something on the way home. So I just figured that's the easiest thing to do. When the first restaurant opened, you were the chef in the back. Correct. Do you still get back into the kitchen? You're like, you know, one day I'm just going to yeah, get... Unfortunately, no. not as much as I would like to, or as much as I... As I I've, I've taken myself out of operations. I made a, I made a conscious decision in 2013 to 2013, 2014, to try to take myself out of operations of the restaurants, like not diving in and doing things because they, I found myself being pulled in so many different directions. There were so many responsibilities, being an owner, you know, trying to drive the business forward, you know, making sure that, that we're, you know, we're still staying financially stable, making sure that the more I was doing all the marketing at the time, I was doing a lot of upper management hiring and promotion and training. I was doing all the food development, 
We had just opened the commissary, which is our production facility downtown. So I was helping out with a lot of the logistics of that sort of thing, you know, transportation of our food across the cities. So, you know, I found myself, if I was jumping in operations, if I was like in a restaurant for a day doing a lot of things, it was taking me away from everything else that I had to do. And then I'd have to go back and have a laundry list of things to accomplish because I lost, I didn't lose a day, but I lost a day of office work because I was in the restaurants. Right. So, and then I, you know, honestly, I, I, I found myself, I wasn't the best at it anymore, you know, cause I was away from it. I was in it. I was away from it. I was in it. I was away from it. It was, it's like anything that you do in life that if you, if you're, if you do it every single day, you become really good at it. And it's muscle memory, whether you are, you're a musician or an athlete or a restaurant, an artist, you know, if you do it every day, you hone your craft and you become really good at it. Your stamina is built up. You could be on your feet for 14, 16, 18 hours. You're, you're mentally prepared for it. It's that, that type of thing. I found myself jumping in and out of operations and it would take me, you know, three or four hours or a day to kickstart myself. Be like, oh, where, where am I supposed to be right now? What am I supposed to do? What goes on this item? Did we, we changed this procedure two days ago. I forget what's going on, what's, what's on, what's going on with this. So I found myself just like, bumping into other people like who are running circles around me. And, you know, we started hiring better people. We, I started building a, um, a regional management team of people that had come up with me through the company and who were honestly really, who were much better at doing things than I was. They were much better at running the restaurant. They were much better at the front of the house operations. They were, were much better at back of the house operations. You know, the, all, all the KMs that we have in the company, the kitchen managers in the company, I mean, they could all run circles around me in the kitchen. It would take me a couple weeks to catch up. And, then, you know, I'm sure I could, you know, get my chops back and I could be, you know, toe to toe. But it just takes me away from other things that I, not that I want to do, but I have to do. Sure, sure. Why, why do you think the Lakewood restaurant was just... I mean, success doesn't even really capture what happened with your Lakewood restaurant. It just exploded. Yeah. And not just locally. It was a national phenomenon when this restaurant came out. I, honestly, you know, if I think it was just the right time at the right place. It was, I don't want to say it was dumb luck because it certainly wasn't dumb, but it was certainly lucky. We just opened up at, at a time and a place when Cleveland especially, the greater Cleveland area, was just the culinary scene was just starting to catch fire. It was just starting somebody pushed that little that snowball off the hill and it was starting to really start to roll and pick up momentum. You know, the Michael Simons of the world, the Zach Brules, Jonathan Sawyer had just opened up Greenhouse. Eric from uh, Momocho, Eric Williams, he and I opened up Melt and Momocho the same year in 06. I opened up September, he might have opened up August or earlier. Our restaurants are, you know, right around the same time. I just think it was a it was a brand new concept in a city that was just making the turn for everything. And I just brought a brand new, I think a, a fresh and a brand new idea and a brand new approach to a restaurant. I was trying to create this restaurant in Nirvana. I was trying to create something that I thought was really cool, fun, and interesting that I wanted to make it equally as fun for the guests as the staff. I wanted the staff to have as, mu as much fun as the guests. You know, I wanted to retain employees. I wanted to, to introduce a new way of, I don't I hate to say eating or dining because that's not true, but the grilled cheese concept was... I don't want to say an afterthought, but I, I my goal was to create a very high quality food in a very non pretentious atmosphere. I wanted to create something where 
Anybody could come in off the street, whether you're wearing shorts and a t-shirt or you're a three-piece suit, bringing a first date or you're bringing your parents in uh, you know, for their 50th wedding anniversary. You know, but I wanted everyone to kind of like, I wanted punk rockers sitting next to grandma and grandpa, you know, and everybody living together harmoniously and just and eating this comfort food in a very non-pretentious, fun atmosphere. And it just all clicked. I don't. I honestly don't know how and why it all worked, but it did. You know, I think it worked because it came from honesty. It came from a very organic thing. I never set off for Melt to be anything but, but what Lakewood originally was. It was a small, fifty-seat restaurant that had that I thought at the time had a really good craft beer list. The gourmet grilled cheese concept was. I never thought it was going to take off like it did. You know, the the Melt was originally designed as a craft beer bar. And that was what it was going to be. You're from Lakewood, so you you were right. you remember the Warren Tavern that was at Warren in Detroit. I do. It's where Sherman Williams and uh, that Walgreens is sitting right now. So where Walgreens is, there was a plaza. There was I forget how many storefronts were in it, but Sherman Williams was on the end, and then there was something else on the other end. But tucked in the middle was this little bar that was called the Warren Tavern, and they had an amazing beer list. If you were a craft beer fan in Cleveland, Ohio. 12 years ago, you could not find craft beer anywhere else in Cleveland except for three locations. La Cave de Vin, which is in Cleveland Heights. Uh, Weeking Lizard had a couple locations, and they focused on craft beer. And then somehow, someway, this little this little hole-in-the-wall bar, which, which happened to have amazing bar food called the Warren Tavern, had 200-and-some beers between tap and bottle. So... I discovered craft beer early on in you know in my early 20s. I lived in Lakewood. I used to go to the Warren Tavern and just hang out because I became friends. And it's just what you did after you, after work. You know, you, you go up and have a couple beers, you eat, eat some food or your day off and just have fun. So I really fell in love with craft beer. At the t- at, I started getting adventurous with craft beer. What happened was is that two years before Melt opened up, the Warren Tavern closed. Walgreens came in, bought the land, bought the plaza, tore it down. So unfortunately, they they had to close. So I looked at this as a very large void in the marketplace. I was like, whoa, my favorite bar in Lakewood just closed. Where am I going to get craft beer? I'm not driving all the way to Cleveland Heights. And, you know, I wasn't a big fan of the Weeking Lizard food, so I wasn't going to go there except for to drink. So I had been working on a, a restaurant concept the light bulb went off, you know, in the cartoon, you see the light bulb go up there, bing, you know? Right. And I was like, oh my gosh, here is an opportunity. I've been trying to do this. I've been pushing myself to open a restaurant. I needed something to kickstart it, and this was it. So that's where I, you know, slammed my fist on a table, and I said, I'm going to do this. I'm finally going to do this. So that was one of the driving forces behind me eventually opening Melt. But Melt was going to become... Warren, the Warren Tavern, except I was just going to do it differently. I was going to have a craft beer bar, but I wanted to do some sort of food. I didn't want to do anything that I had seen before in Lakewood because Lakewood was full of shot and beer type bars. Lakewood was full of wing joints and burgers and pizza and subs and all this kind of stuff. And I just didn't want to do, I didn't want to reinvent the wheel. I didn't want to just do something over again. I had two menus written. I had a really nice kind of gastro pubby menu, plated entrees, you know, kind of like higher price points, you know, written down. But I also had a little sidekick menu f- written uh, that was going to be this gourmet grilled cheese menu that was going to kind of complement and go along with these really nice plated entrees. And the more I played with the food, the more I thought about it, and the more once I bought the business and I looked in the, at the street and I looked up and down Lakewood, I said, 
you know what? I'm going to throw caution in the wind. I'm just going to focus on this grilled cheese thing because the beer is going to be my driver. The beer is what's going to bring people in. I just need something to feed them with. So I, I was going to work in the kitchen every day and I wanted to, I wanted to have fun with it. So I was like, I'm going to have fun. I'm going to do these gourmet grilled cheese menu because I had never seen it anywhere in the country. You know, I did a lot of research and I didn't see anybody doing anything close to it. So I said, Hey, you know what? Pass or fail. I'm going to do it. If it's going to work, it's going to work. And I'll be hopefully successful for the rest of my life. If it fails, Hey, you know what? Sun's going to come up tomorrow. I'll, I will, I'll pick up the pieces and do it. Fortunately, I chose that path because I thought craft beer was going to be the driving force, which it was at the time. But now look at the craft beer industry. I mean, you can find craft beer anywhere and everywhere. Every, That's right. every convenience store, every grocery store, every bar, every restaurant. I mean, you can walk into the crappiest bar in in any city, and they're going to have one to two to three craft beers on next to the Budweiser's and the Coors Lights and all that kind of stuff. So if I had an open melt with the gourmet grilled cheese concept, would I still be in business today? I don't know. But that that's that's the, the long version. <laughs> <laughs> one of the questions I really wanted to ask you was, how do you stay true to your vision when there's so many rationalizations not to? Staying true to the original vision is always tough. That's that's one of the hardest things that I personally struggle with and we struggle with as a company. I mean, we, I started a culture. I didn't realize that, but I started a culture with Melt. I mean, we have almost 900 people that have our logo tattooed on them, for heaven's sake. So, so there, you know, there's no certainly no pressure there to, continue, to keep things going. Right. That's really what it, it comes down to. It's like, how do I keep that original vision? How do I keep the passion? How do I keep the, uh, the brand and the culture moving forward? That's, that's the hardest part about it, really, honestly. Well, I like where you're going with the culture because I think that's, well, that's, part that's a key of, thing. I, mean, I, I don't think you've got a great company without great culture. We've had to compromise. Obviously, we've, you know, as you grow you know, with 10 stores, the, the bottom line gets harder and harder to manage. So you have to cut not really, I hate to say cut costs, but you have to make some smart decisions in life. We've never compromised on quality. We've never compromised on guest, guest um, comfort and guest service. We, we've actually increased the quality of the restaurant probably 800 times over since day one. I still, we still get comments and it drives me bonkers, but you know, people, oh, I used to go to Melt when it first opened up. I was, I used to wait three hours for a sandwich and it's not the same. It's not as good as it used to be. You know, the quality's going down and blah, blah, blah. It's like, Bro, or whoever, I, I was there. I remember, and it wasn't nearly as good as it is now. The, high, the quality of, of we were, where you were using back then, everything just was not nearly as good as it is now, you know? But I don't want to compromise. I don't want to, I don't want to just settle, you know? And I need to constantly remind myself of that because it becomes, as you grow and you become established and you have other people within your company making decisions, it's easier just to kind of like sit back and, and, not being the driver's seat anymore and just allow things to happen, which I do. You know, I let people a lot, I've delegated a lot of responsibilities out to different people within my company. So I let a lot of decisions be made every single day. Some I agree with and some I, sometimes I don't agree with them, but I understand that we're doing, that the decisions are being made for the benefit of the whole, you know, the whole company, not just one individual person or one individual food item or one individual restaurant. We have to think, Globally, we have to think how to, you know, we have to think beyond 10 stores. We have 10 locations now, you know, and we have to think beyond that. Is this, is this decision going to work for 10 locations? Is this decision going to work for 500 employees? Is this decision going to work for the next 10 years? If the answer is no, 
then we can't really make that. We can't, then we have to take the other path because we can't make, like I said, we can't just make decisions based off of one instance or one person or one location because it has to work throughout the company. That's just, that's, and honestly, that's just how we've designed Melt. That's how I've designed it. And that's just how it's kind of organically grown. Other restaurant groups have different concepts and different types of approaches so they can make decisions based off of individual restaurants. You know, going back to Michael Simon, you know, I hate to keep using him as an example, but, you know, he's got the Lola, he's got Lola downtown and he's got his B spots and, you know, he's got some locations in Detroit and things like that. So he can, his restaurant group can obviously make different decisions based off of the different locations or different restaurant concepts they have. Hey, this is how we do things at B spot, but we, this is not how we do things at Lola or vice versa. But we, fortunately or unfortunately have put ourselves in a very small box and we have to live within that very small box. So we have to make decisions that are going to affect every single person in that box. What's the next big thing for you? Well, my wife is nine months pregnant. So the big, yeah, next, mazel tov. the next big thing for me is going to be heading to the hospital probably within the next like month or I mean, a week. Like we're due the 29th of July. So my phone was just ringing in my pocket and I'm hesitant to look at it thinking that she's <laughs> calling me saying, Hey, yeah. time to go. She's so, on her way. You got to go meet her at yeah, the house. No, she, you know, I should probably check, shouldn't I? I get so many phone calls throughout the day. Let me see. Nope. No, good. Not, not her. We're good. We're good. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the next really big thing. I, I'm 45 years old and I'm having my first child. So that's going to be a, a game changer, I think, for me and her. Dude, I, I was 45 when I had my first. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and it's... You know, last night we're down at the at the yacht club, and you know she's at the pool, and it's just the it's just me and her. It's magical. I mean, it's just a great experience. I'm really looking forward to. It. We both are. It's it's never been on my radar. It's never been something that I, that I honestly wanted to do. You know, I never felt like, oh, if I don't have a kid, I'm gonna feel like I've let myself down, or I'm gonna regret. You know, I was always the person who was like, if it happens, I'll love it, and I'll enjoy it, and I'll I'll ride it out. And if it never if it doesn't happen. I know I, I I won't feel I don't I don't think I'll feel any regret, but you know when we got together almost six years ago now I mean that was a big thing for her she's like hey I really want to have a family I really this is really what I want to do, so I said okay I'm I'm totally fine with that let's let's make it happen so here we are nine months in <laughs> so it's a little stressful we're like we're like you know we're waiting we're just playing that waiting game right now you know everybody can tell you everything up to this point. And, you know, you're like, okay, okay, okay. But now that we're up against it and we're literally at the edge of the cliff and we're looking down and we're ready to jump and knowing that, you know, how many billions of people have jumped off that cliff before us, you know, it makes me feel a lot better about it. But at the same time, we're doing it now. And it's a little, it's a little stressful. It's a little nerve wracking. You'll enjoy it, man. Yeah. Just a little side advice. Always have paper towels, wipes. And diapers. If if you got that stocked, we do. You're in good shape. We do. We're good. But business wise, I assumed that that was a business question for me. But oh, it's just a, it was a question. Yeah. I, I'm, I, if it's personal, that's wonderful. And if it's business too, that's great. I mean, we're still trying to grow the brand. Obviously, we're looking out of state right now. We're looking Detroit. We're looking Pittsburgh. Um, we're looking to fill in a couple gaps throughout Ohio, Toledo, Youngstown, Cincinnati. But Detroit and Pittsburgh are are two strong markets that we want to break into. Uh, Detroit, especially, been there several times to to look at space. 
been there several times to talk to restaurateurs, talk to, we have a broker in, in the city that we, um, that we go, we go and look at space with. So it's a really strong market. I like Detroit a lot as a city. Uh, the culture is great over there. The people seem to be really awesome. The culinary scene is really strong. There's a, it's a, it's a really large city. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with how big Detroit is, but it's, you know, four some million people metro area, you know, and right. Cleveland can't say that. Columbus can't say that. Pittsburgh can't say that. You know, you could put those cities together and say that. So it's it's really big. Once you get into that market and you start looking at it, you're like, whoa, this is a big city. Well, that's great. Uh, final question uh, uh, for you on the hot seat. Outside of Melt, where do you like to nosh, dine, or just chill in Lakewood, Ohio? In Lakewood, Ohio. Let's see. I haven't lived in Lakewood, and I haven't dined in Lakewood in quite a while. I um, mean, Angelo's Pizza is still one of my go-tos. If I'm go- if I'm cruising through Lakewood, if we don't have any dinner plans at home, or my, you know, we're kind of him and hawing about what to eat, you know, we can always stop there and grab a pizza. Not in Lakewood necessarily, but in Rocky River, there's a little. Not little, but there's a uh, Asian restaurant called Kingwa on Center Ridge. Is this yeah, 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 it's Center on Ridge. Center Ridge, right across the street from West, where Westgate is now. Been going there for years. Um, they they have fantastic food, great Polynesian drinks. There was a point in my life when I was probably going there once a week, or you know, a couple times a month. We've backed off a little bit since we don't live on this side of town anymore. Still hit Johnny Mango every so often. We make it down to Tremont a lot. Um, Dante's one of our favorite restaurants. Dante's one of my favorite people. He's a great dude. Uh, Fat Cat's down at Tremont. But I know your question was Lakewood. I mean, Deegan's does a really good job. We, we I've gotten up, up there a couple times. Honestly, I haven't dined in Lakewood except Met Melt in, <laughs> in, in, in quite a long time. Well, we got to get you out to some new places. I know. I get... mean, there's a ton that have opened up that I really want to try. Yeah. If I lived in Lakewood still, I would be... I would be hitting, hitting, hitting them all, but I just don't. I, I come on here for, for to work a lot to, for business, you know, and have meetings and do podcasts and things like that. But <laughs> dining haven't in a long time, and I, I now I feel bad about that. Don't feel bad. We'll get you in rotation once uh, you get your sea legs with the kid. I can't say thank you enough, man, for coming in today and speaking with us. Pleasure. And hopefully, we can get you back in the future for another round. Yeah. No, please invite me back. I want to thank all the great people involved in making this podcast, especially our guests who took the time to join us for this interview. Executive producer, me, myself, and I, producer Bridget Coyne, audio engineers Eric Coltnow and Dave Douglas. Startup Lakewood is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Subscribe to Startup Lakewood on your favorite podcast app or go to evergreenpodcast.com. And for you entrepreneurs out there, keep struggling. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.